vintage sand. Hello, hello, hello. We're back from beyond. It's Team Vintage Sand once again. The vaccinated Michael Edmund, the vaccinated Josh Cabot, and the soon-to-be-vaccinated John Meyer. We're 2-2-0 two, two and oh for those of you keeping score at home. And like you, we're all probably starting to lose our minds a little bit. Gentlemen, are you starting to lose your minds a little bit? Yes. Yes! Yes, I think so. Because yeah. I, I think we kind of hoped that there was going to be... That was be... a little crazy to begin with. Yeah, I, I thought there was going to be sort of a clean end to this, and um, there just hasn't been. It has, it has not been clean in any way. So, um, but we are back with episode number 28 already. My Tempest Fugget time flies, and we are going to um, uh, turn our attention today to, uh, to a, a part of film that is occasionally underrated, but, you know, can turn into, and I think you're going to find that as you listen to our lists today, that you'll see this a lot, that among the most important collaborations a director have can be with a composer. And we're going to be talking about our favorite movie scores today. As an act of mercy, and because I think we'd be violating the Geneva Convention if we did, we're not going to hum or sing any of the tunes, but... Really? All right, you can, Michael. You can, I'm, I'm, we, we can, do, you can do a little bit of humming. But can you think of what was, the, what was the first music score? Because I know the first music score, although it doesn't fit into the category. My parents, when I was three years old, um, bought me the soundtrack of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I must have listened to that 10,000 times. And, and it's really good. You know, it's by the Sherman Brothers who did Mary Poppins. So what's, what's the first time you remember movie music sticking in your head? Uh, actually, it's in one of my honorable mentions, and I'm not going to tell you until... Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and, and it's a really it's a really bad choice. You guys are going to give me grief about it, but... Uh, That's I okay. I still hear it in my head. And, and how... It was when uh, I was eight. I'm sorry, Mike, our 45 minutes is up. Can we pick this up again next week at the same time? Okay. <laughs> John, what about you? Well, you know, I'll tell you a little story. Um, I love stories. When I was when I was when I was a kid, my father loved the music from Gigi, and he used to play it all the time. So that that music, I always heard that music when I was a little kid. And uh, there was one Christmas where uh, I would ask my mother sometimes, like you know, is there a movie I can buy for you that you really want? Because I would usually buy her a couple of movies. And she said, you know, can you, you think you can find Gigi for me? I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I visited for Christmas and I, I gave it to her. She's like, oh, that's great. And of course she watched it. Halfway through the movie, I realized, and I hadn't seen the movie in many, many years. I knew the words to every single song because my father played that music over and over and over again when I was a little kid. <laughs> See, if, you know, if we could just get rid of that stuff in our brains and put useful stuff in there, we could rule the world. John, your father had good taste. This is true. Billy, thank heaven for little girls. We're going to go with that. I like that John, score. John, you want to sing it for us? Or? I like that score a lot. I always have. All right. So then that, that is an appropriate lead into, we had to set some, some rules for this one. Now, we may do other kinds of scores uh, as time goes on, but... What we're focusing yeah. on this, uh, in this episode is instrumental scores, okay? First, a, a quick definition of terms. Um, 
for those of you who don't know the terms diegetic and non-diegetic. Diegetic music is music that arises naturally from the scene. So if a character turns on the radio or something like that, that's the music that you hear. Non-diegetic is music that's played in the background as a score. All right, so we are focusing on non-diegetic music. Um, we are, that's predominantly instrumental and or vocal, all right, orchestral, maybe some synthesizers. We may see a little Vangelis sneaking in here, uh, here and there, but um, that kind of instrumentation or vocal. What's not, what we're not doing in this case is collections of vocal or instrumental songs written by a person or two specifically for the film, like Gigi, like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, like any right. music, right. all right? So, and that also, it, so this rules, rules out musicals. It also rules out some really great scores like, you know, Shaft jumps to mind or any of those great black exploitation scores. You know, Isaac Hayes' Shaft and Curtis Mayfield's Superfly and James, uh, uh, Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man. Uh, James Brown did Little Caesar. So we're not counting those. That may be uh, and for another show, all the way up to, say, the songs that Amy Mann wrote for Magnolia, which are so important to that Paul Thomas Anderson film. All right, also, we're not including, and this is a separate art form in its own, collections of pop songs and instrumentals by multiple artists. You know, the kind of thing that Tarantino does, uh, what T-Bone Burnett did for the Coens with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, or uh, Lewin Davis. Um, you know, Wes, uh, Wes Anderson is a master of that too. And early Paul Thomas Anderson, before he met Johnny, Johnny Greenman. For and again, we're not, we're not dismissing, we're not saying that the kind we're talking about are better. It's just separate, different, and maybe for another show. And finally, no collections of classical music by single or multiple composers that was not written for the film. So Manhattan leaps to mind or the music that Kubrick used for 2001, Strauss waltzes and such, or Malick's Tree of Life using, so those are out too. I happen, I don't know if you guys did, I, I didn't count, well, one of my composers is sort of a borderline classical composer, but you know, you have people like Prokofiev composing the music for Alexander Nevsky and Copeland yeah. composing the music for the heiress and for Our Town. I, I didn't include those because they get enough attention from the classical people. I kind of focused more on the movie people, but it's interesting. Um, before we started the episode, John and Mike were telling me their list. And it's what's really interesting, guys, you notice that none of us has on our list any of the sort of, I guess you would consider the old masters, Max Steiner, you know, Dimitri Chomkin, Franz Watzman, uh, Elmer Bernstein, Maury Jarre, Jerry Goldsmith, people like that. I wonder, why do you think that is? John and I have Elmer Bernstein. You have Bernstein. Okay, good. We were just talking. Yeah. It, um, and you haven't heard our honorable mentions yet. Yeah, you haven't. Right. So we, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, do you guys have Lawrence of Arabia on your, no? Uh, no. Yeah, because that. You, he's, 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 he's a honorable, honorable mention for me. It's, it's really a, a matter of can you imagine the, the film without the music? And for these films that we're going to talk about today, I think the answer to that is no. It's also not surprising then, circling back, that you're going to see a lot of director-composer pairings. Because, that you know, starting with Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock, but going all the way through, it's such an important 
kind of collaboration. It, it can make or break a film. And, you know, you can't, right now, like, I can't imagine, as much as I loved Paul Thomas Anderson's compilation soundtracks and the Amy Mann music from Magnolia, I can't imagine the last three films, four films, including Inherent Vice, which is so interesting without Johnny Greenwood's music. Uh, so there are still pairs out, you know, Alexander Desplat working with uh, Wes Anderson, Carter Burwell yeah. working with the Coens. So there are still those pairs out there. So let's dive right in. We're not necessarily going in the order of our favorites, but we'll just go sort of go five, four, three, two, one. So Johnny, let's start with you. What's first on your list or fifth on your list? Oh, well, I'll kick it off with Chinatown. Um, I, just that, that beautiful, beautiful opening theme. I really love how you hear that the little bit of music in the very beginning that's sort of slightly sinister and foreboding. And then it goes into that very, very lush romantic theme. And it, it kind of sets up, if you haven't seen the movie before, I think an audience is thinking, oh, you know, the nostalgia, the, you know, everything back in the 30s was so wonderful and romantic. And you, as the movie moves along, you start to realize, Oh, it's not that. That's not what this is. And I also kind of, kind of hear the music, kind of hear the music as what the Jack Nicholson character wants his life to be. But as you learn more and more about him, you realize it's not at all, and may never be. I, I, I'm, I'm going to admit, I'm going to embarrass myself and admit I don't know who wrote the, who wrote the score. Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith. It was Goldsmith. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Not my honorable mention. Yeah. And, yeah, and there aren't too many other scores that I can think of that he did that would make me think that that's Jerry Goldsmith when I hear that music the first time I heard it. Did he work with Polanski uh, anywhere else? I don't just think kind so. of assigned by no. the studio. Yeah. No. It's a great studio. No, I mean, and he did a did a very good did a very good score for Patton. That's a very well known. known yeah. Theme. I like the score for Patton. Yeah. I love, yeah, John, really I, lo I love something you said. I love when the music sort of suggests something that is either counter or beyond what's, what, you know, what's actually happening in the movie, suggests something bigger or something. You know, I, I promised yeah. I wouldn't mention it, but yeah. I, think of, I think of like Superfly, which is, a, again, I said I wouldn't mention it, but just quickly, it's a film that, that somewhat glamorizes the life of this guy who's a drug dealer, but all of Curtis Mayfield's songs in the film are about the ravages of drugs. So you have this really interesting tension between what we're seeing on the screen and the songs that are playing. And, and, and it yeah. re really makes the film that much better. Mike, what's your... Uh, what's also, your there really isn't that much music in the movie either, but it's used no. so well and, yeah, and, I, I, and just that, so effectively. That fits, our, that fits our criteria. Can you imagine the film without it? No. I, I could not imagine Chinatown. No, no way. No way. And, you know... I, I mean, I love how he uses, how he used the, uh, the inside of the piano for those one little moments. Like, for example, when Jake uh, is, is gone to go see the riverbed and it's completely dry and he's just observing what's going on. And, you know, you hear that, that sort of zinger of the piano strings. Yep. Bad for glass. So perfect. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Michael, what's on you? What's first on your list, or fifth? Um, I'm doing this in uh, chronological order, and I'm starting with a Bernard Herrmann, uh, North by Northwest. Start with the best. Yeah, well, it, it's it's 
tied for my second place of uh, favorite Bernard Herrmann there, along with Psycho. And I knew John was going to do Psycho. So I think he was going to do it. Uh, so I, I chose North by Northwest. What I particularly love about this is Herman uses three kinds of music throughout. The chase, which is, of course, the opening theme when it's kind of like a tornado. And you could say it's almost like a metaphor for living life in New York City. You know, the credits are against the, uh, the skyscraper. Right. And then it's used only twice, again in the film, in, in the uh, ch uh, chase in, um, when he's drunk. Uh, in Long Island, and then, of course, on the uh, Mount Rushmore. And then there's the suspense music, which is done periodically, usually. It, it, it's like it's almost building up to something and you never know what, like uh, the scene in the house where uh, Kendall is about to go, is about to uh, fly away. <laughs> yes. It's a long way down. <laughs> Uh, exactly. And then, of course, there's, there's the love music. And the love music is fine. It, it, I don't think it's up to the other standards, but it, it, it serves its purpose well. And that's uh, used mainly on the train and uh, in the other scenes uh, with him, uh, with, Thorwell, uh, with Thornwell and Eve. But um, it's, it's, it's just a beautiful score. And it isn't too much. The, the, the genius of Alfred Hitchcock, unlike some directors today, is he knows exactly, exactly where to use the music. Yes. And when to keep quiet. There's hardly any music in the famous crop duster scene, for instance. Although the story goes that Herman... Oh, yeah, that's... Herman, Herman talked him into using the, uh, the shrieking violins for Psycho, right? He wanted that to be with no music, too. Yes. I, I yeah, yes. there. and right. Herman was Herman. That's well, yeah. Well, but, and um, uh, we should don't go there it. yet. Don't go there I yet. I won't. I won't. I won't. That's I'm you. Going. I'm giving that to you. Step out of the shower. <laughs> um, but I generally, <laughs> oddly enough, with one exception, I generally always liked Herman's scores. I'm not crazy about taxi. I mean, it's a late work and it, it does feel a little rushed, but yeah. yeah maybe because he finished it on the day he died, you know. Right. It's like, that's cutting it close, Bernie. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we're going to talk. There's one film, you know, that, well, let's put it this way. In the last Sight and Sound poll, the number one and two films were Kane and Vertigo, and they have yep. one thing in common. Yep. And that yep, would yep, yep. be Mr. Herman's music. So absolutely. Yes. Said. <laughs> so um, I don't know what's more to be said. Uh, I do no, remember. I do remember a, a, a drunken incident in college the night Jimmy Carter was elected. That I was driving two people from St. Cloud to uh, Minnesota to uh, Minneapolis, and I was smashed. And I was driving because I was the least smashed of the three of us, and. As I was driving, all I could hear was that music <laughs> of North by Northwest and me desperately trying not to smash the car, and I didn't. It's the only time I've ever driven that drunk. I could just see you pulling you over and you saying, I thought we could take care of it right here in Brainerd. <laughs> yeah, really. You betcha. Can you, can, you imagine, can you imagine two scores more different, though, too, than Citizen Kane and Vertigo? 
No. Exactly. And, and, and like elder. certain composers, frankly, like Maurice Jarre, um, you can't really yeah. identify a Bernard Herrmann's score just by listening to a minute of it. I mean, unless and, you know the movie. And you could even argue that his, his, one of his most interesting scores is The Birds, which he worked on with Hitchcock for two Ooh, yeah. years. Right. No music. It's just the, the auditory effects and the recordings of bird sounds and, and the electronic manipulations of it. That's as genius in its own way as the lush music that he writes. So I yeah, there's, there's him and then there's everybody else, I think. We are, we are in I kind of agree, almost. Yeah. So from, for me, my number, I'm, I'm sort of going roughly in order. My number five is one of my favorite director-composer partnerships and one of the oddest ones of all. And that is the pairing of Tim Burton and Danny Elfman, uh, who I don't think they're working together anymore, but among the things they create, I think, you know, for Pee Wee, which was his first, Burton's first film, Danny Elfman was the lead singer and composer of Oingo Boingo, you 80s fans will remember that. And I don't know what, possessed, you know, uh, Tim Burton to ask Danny Elfman, but it was a marriage made in heaven. For that, for Beetlejuice, for really almost all of the films, the Batman films with Michael Keaton, but I'm, I'm centering on Edward Scissorhands because the music for that is so beautiful and so delicate and so perfect. And I'm just gonna mention one moment and it's the moment that everyone remembers the music and it's been image. That's another standard we can use, has it been, imitated and the Elfman music for Edward Scissorhands has been imitated so many hundreds yes. of times in other movies and commercials and such. The scene where he's um, cutting the snow angel out, out in the backyard and Winona Reiner, and, and so it feels like snow's falling. And it feels like this unholy combination of, you know, Elvis Christmas music with Tchaikovsky Christmas music. It's just beautiful. And you see her kind of, you know, dancing around in it in slow motion as the snow falls on her. It's such a beautiful melody. It just embodies to me all the work that Elfman did with Burton. And then of course the scene ends badly. He cuts her hand when Anthony Michael Hall shows up and things get worse from there. But it's such a beautiful score. Plus I, I got to see um, the uh, Philharmonic did a night of Danny Elfman music and uh, I, 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 it really works well orchestrally too. It's actually just very solid music. Um, and that was I, televised, wasn't it? Yes, I think yes, absolutely. It yeah, was. I saw it. Yeah. But the cool thing was, I got to see a theremin for the first time because Mars Attacks. The music from Mars Attacks opens with a theremin. Ooh, it was really, really cool. So yeah, for me, I mean, I love all of Elfman's work with Burton but um, it's one of my favorite pairs. But for me, especially Edward Scissorhands and especially, especially that one moment that everyone has completely ripped off. Johnny, what's next for you? Star Wars. Um, it's hard how, to just- How do you pick, pick a one? Yeah. yeah, it's hard to pick just one John Williams score, but that's the one I went with. And one of the things I really like about Star Wars, besides the fact that that opening thing is very, very well known, is it's a sort of a throwback score, which goes very well with the movie since it was sort of a throwback kind of story to begin with. And it very much reminds me of a score that you're going to be talking about, Josh, using the different themes for different characters, uh, 
I mean, I love, I love the, the music for Darth Vader. It's, it's just so much fun. And what's really interesting is when they play, when, when Luke is, is, is desperate and kind of giving up and is sitting on, you know, after C-3PO's, after R2's run away, and then you see the two sons of Tatooine setting, we don't hear his theme, we hear Obi-Wan's theme, which is interesting. So it's yeah. not always the character that's on, but it's sort of reflecting something about what Luke's going to be uh, as he's going to meet Obi-Wan the next day. So yeah, I mean, where do you even begin with Williams? I mean, that's a Wagnerian idea. I mean, Wagner is really, you know, each character yes. has his or her own motif and it comes in and it's kind of, you know, but boy, yeah. I don't think anyone does that better in film music than William. I mean, there's so many scores that to try to start to mention. I don't even know if we have time. <laughs> well, just just his work with Spielberg and Lucas alone that would have been enough. But he's done others too. Yes, yes. Michael, yes. what's up for you next? Okay, uh, I have a tie, uh, <laughs> but two. Two scores, but uh, one, one composer, and I really wanted to mention this composer because he's not, not as well known as he should be. And that's uh, John Barry. I mean- Yes, um, love for John Barry, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he is known, of course, for uh, all of his um, James Bond school, Marsha with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Moonraker, Octopus Pussy, A View to a Kill, The Living Day Life. He's won five Oscars, two for Born Free, uh, one for The Lion in Winter, Out of Africa, and Dances with Wolves. Uh, and uh, he had a long career, 40 years. I mean, um, uh, he started in the early 60s and went uh, into the 90s. The two I'm going to talk about are, oddly enough, the two first two soundtracks I ever bought. And one is from The Chase, which a lot of people might not know. It's an Arthur Penn movie from uh, 1966, uh, from a Horton Foot play with a screenplay by Lillian Hellman. Great stars, Marlon Brando, uh, Jane Fonda, Robert Redford, Robert Duvall. And uh, it's one of those movies, Sam Spiegel produced it, and it's one of those movies that everybody tried to get their names taken off the credits. Because apparently Sam Spiegel uh, had it recut and rewritten. Lillian Hellman actually sued to get her name off. And it's not... It's an interesting movie. It's very well acted, except I think Redford's kind of miscast. Some of the writing is bad. And I don't, uh, Hellman claims that it was rewritten against her will. I'm not a big Hellman fan. But let me go back to the music. It starts off with a very foreboding theme, and then it pulls back. And then there is suspense throughout. Uh, if people don't know the plot. It's a guy who's, uh, um, escaped from prison and is coming back to his Texas town where everybody fears him. Everybody. His, his mother, his wife, his, his best friend, everybody fears him because he's always been a bad boy. This is Robert Redford who, who leaves the prison in a perfect haircut. It's really Redford. weird casting. Um, but there's... Barry's music just just 
flew me as an 11 year old. I had, I had to buy the album. It starts off with a rather harsh, forward uh, uh, sounding uh, theme. And then it pulls back and it's, the theme is rarely used throughout, throughout the movie. And then there is, there's jazz scores. You see this Texas town, which is you know, right out of a bad soap opera. And, um, and then you hear, you hear his mother, the music for his mother's home. And it's like, what did we, it's even called on the album, What Did We Do Wrong? And that's Miriam Hopkins in one of her few good performances. <laughs> silently, silently, just with a, with a terrible face, a horrible face like, oh my God, this is all my fault. And why, why did this happen to me? And um, have you ever seen it, Josh? I have not seen it. It's on Turner Classic Movies tonight. Oh, there you go. You can DVR it. It's, as I said, yes. I won't say it's a good movie, but it's something I always watch. Um, and um, it, was, it was my introduction to John Barry. That was the same year he won uh, two Oscars for Born Free. And then two years later, The Lion in Winter. Totally different score, uh, which is used for Gregorian chants, uh, Latin music, uh, Latin um, lyrics or Latin sounding chants. And of course, it's a period piece of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. The funny thing about that movie is the original Broadway play was written as a comedy and failed. It, was a, it ran only two months on Broadway. And two, uh, three years later, the movie is, is successful because director Anthony Harvey and John Barry chose to make it a serious, serious. movie with wit. And it worked better. It's still, I don't think it's the greatest movie in the world. When I was 13, I loved it. Now I look at it and I go, mm. yeah. O'Toole and, and Hepburn are great in it, but um, the movie is kind of, some of the writing is kind of like not very good. And as a comedy, I've worked on it as an actor. It's not really that funny. Nope. But yeah, definitely John Barry deserves some love. And as the resident uh, James Bond fanatic, um, I would say that easily his best single score is from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which, by the way, he wrote the theme for. There is no vocal song with the movie, uh, Louis Armstrong's oh, okay. song in the middle. I never it. saw that one. He, it is right behind From Russia With Love as my second favorite uh, Bond film of the 24. And, uh, and Barry has a lot to do with it. It's an amazingly good it, it's the most emotional, even more so than Skyfall, it's the most emotional Bond film. And, and he could, really helps. And he could write scores for dramas, uh, such as Seance on a Wet Afternoon, Petulia. And then and, uh, his score for a really other, other forgettable movie is like a, a best-selling uh, uh, um, CD or album, uh, Somewhere in Time. It's a very famous score. Oh, yeah. the, mo the movie is... Totally I mean, forgettable. Yeah, I saw it when it came a, out, I remember. And it wasn't even uh, as successful. My, uh, I think my, my favorite John Barry moment is that part in Out of Africa with the plane, with that music. It's just yes. so beautiful. It is. It's a beautiful yes. score. 
Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, those two movies were the first two uh, soundtrack albums I ever bought. And I listened to them to death. And to, to this day, I love the music of both those films. And, yeah, um, and John Barry needs to be known for more than just, I mean, you know, he basically invented cool British, you know, guitar jazz music in the early 60s. I mean, that, that signature sound is unmistakable and it's his, but he did so much more than that. And I looked up his bio, apparently uh, his father owned a lot of um, cinemas. And uh, he was just a moviegoer oh, from a uh, movie guy. Yeah. All right. From a well, very young age. For my, for my next one, for my number four, I guess it is, I'm going to break my own rule a little bit because it's the 1938 uh, Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, directed by uh, William Keeley and Michael Curtiz. And the music is by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. And Korngold was sort of on the border of being a top drawer classical composer a la Copeland or Prokofiev, who I mentioned before. But, you know, there is not one moment of the music that stands out. And I, first of all, the theme is just one of the best themes ever. It's so Errol Flynn, it's so Robin Hood. I, you just cannot imagine the film without the music. He does the the Williams, you know, Wagner thing where characters have their own themes and they cycle yeah. in and cycle out and reflect on the action directly and indirectly. It is just a flipping masterpiece that that is probably the, one of the few that could stand on its own word to be performed in a concert setting. You know, if someone did an arrangement of the music from The Adventures of Robin Hood, you know, a Robert Russell Bennett kind of arrangement like he did for Porgy and Bess of something like that. That would, that would, it could stand on its own as a concert piece as well. And yet it's inextricable from the movies. It's both, it's everything. It's the closest I'm gonna get to pure classical, but if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time, it's, it's, the, it's the blueprint for all adventure films. <laughs> They're all kind of just very, I don't think adventure films ever got better than that or more exciting or funny or romantic or yeah, Flynn was I, never I, better. And I, I am, I'm sure that uh, listened to the music and watched Robin Hood a few times before doing the score for Star Wars. <laughs> oh yeah, no, yeah. Williams is no dummy. Yeah, Pete. And by the way, I have to add that I remember um, when, the, when Star Wars came out in 77 and my sister and I, my sister and I listened to it so much that when she asked me, I, I can, uh, I have a way of turning uh, vinyl into MP3s. And, and so we dug up my old Star Wars soundtracks and I tried to, the needle went right across it. We had worn out the grooves on all three of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Literally worn out the grooves. They were unplayable. We listened to them so much. So yeah, and, and as that. you say, as you very accurately say, John Williams, did not come out of nowhere. And Corn Gold, especially the score for yeah. Robin Hood, is such a huge influence on him. Johnny, what's yes. next for you? To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, oh, just that's a, that, it's just, yeah, lovely, I think, is really the right word. It's, so, it's, it's music that's so moving. And I can't think of another score that's anything that, that Elmer Bernstein did that's anything like To Kill a Mockingbird, at least going up to that point. Um, because his scores were very, very different. Um, oh, he was kind of bombastic, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, I mean, the, like around that time, uh, The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, 
you know, scores like that. Uh, he had done Sweet Smell of Success. Ah, oh, fantastic. Hug. Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a real mixture. I didn't know this, but he studied with Aaron Copeland. Oh, is it? And I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. And you can, yeah, and you can hear some of the Copeland in some of the Copeland influence in *To Kill a Mockingbird*. It works that Americana well, influence. But I just that opening theme. Yeah, it's so so beautiful and so appropriate. Just that, that the opening sequence of them opening up the box and looking at the different things and the child sort of humming. It's just so great. It's one of my favorite mo moments in all of film. Just, just that opening, listening to that music and the, the visual of, of the child drawing with the crayon and taking the different things out of the box. So perfect. Yeah, we, have, we have argued before that, uh, that there are really only two brilliant films made from brilliant American novels and that the first is Grapes of Wrath and that the second is Mockingbird. And it, it's, and I, again, can't imagine it without the music. No. No, I, I, again, to our audience, I have to apologize. We're not going to hum things for you, and we can't play clips because of copyright issues. So you're just going to have to trust us and go back and see and, and see these and listen with good headphones and such as we describe. Um, Mikey, what's next for you? Okay, I'm. I was going to do one, do it in chronological order, but since we're on the subject of Elmer Bernstein, I'm going to skip ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, First of all, a little trivia for, for both of you. Maybe you know this. Elmer Bernstein was nominated for 14 Academy Awards. He won only one. The, uh, the ones that he was nominated for uh, is uh, The Man with the Golden Arm, The Magnificent Seven, Summer and Smoke, The Kill a Mockingbird, Walk on the Wild Side, Return of the Seven, Hawaii, two nominations, True Grit, Gold, two nominations, Trading Places, The Age of Innocence, and Far From Heaven. Can you guess what he won for? No. He thoroughly modern Millie. Oh, good God. <laughs> and oh. he was once interviewed on Turner Classic Movies in one of their little segments. And he goes, yeah, I won for that. And he kind of looked at the camera like, why? <laughs> Well, I mean, look, one of the handful of composers who's as iconic as, say, Bernard Herrmann uh, or Bernstein is Ennio Morricone, and Morricone won his Oscar for The Hateful Eight. Yeah. Which is an atrocious film. I mean, and I'm a Tarantino lover, but I'm, I'm just glad it was made so it could get Morricone his Oscar. He should have won it for Once Upon a Time in America, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. That's um, another episode. That's interesting thing about, about Bernstein is he had sort of this had sort of a second career when he did Animal House and he started doing scores for, for oh, yeah. comedies. The score for Animal House is great. It's oh great. my God, yeah. And, and um, he did comedies. One of my favorite scores as a kid, another uh, 1965, The Hallelujah Trail. I remember seeing that movie and loving the music. It's, it's not the greatest comedy in the world, but it was fun. And uh, the, the world of Henry Oyen. Uh, I love you, Alice B. Tokas. I mean, he did so much. But what I'm going to talk a little bit about yeah. is The Age of Innocence. Which oh, I'm, I, extraordinary. Josh, okay, I, will I, I just changed disagree my mind. with you. We're, okay. adding that, we're adding that onto the list of brilliant American novels that made brilliant American films. Because it's my That's favorite on. novel. It's my favorite novel of all, the, all time. 
It always has been. And I thought Scorsese did a perfect job. And part of the success is the combination uh, of the lush music that he uses and Joanne Woodward's narration. And the music is, is totally filled with emotion from, from the opening credits, which is not a very tuneful. It's almost like doom is coming. Mm. And then it starts with waltzes. And, it, and the two Strauss waltzes are used uh, in the beginning of the film. He incorporates it and then he does his own waltzes. And there's music throughout and every piece of music in that movie. I, I just haven't, I, 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 there were so many great moments in that movie. It's, it's one of those films that every time I see it, I like it even more. I al it's almost coming uh, just below uh, Raging Bull. It's, it's my favorite Scorsese. Wow, look at that's me. a bold statement. Yeah, I know. People look at me strangely. when. No, no, I, so, I don't disagree. <laughs> because and it was not, a well was not a well-received movie. Well, but I loved his comment about it. He's, you know, he's, they said it's so unusual for you. You know, you make gangster films and such. He said, this is the most violent film I've ever made. It's just the violence yeah. is not physical, which exactly. I thought summed it up perfectly. Exactly. But uh, well, I, I it, it, ends with a, it ends with a metaphorical death. Yeah. Yes. It, oh, it, and, 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 you know, we mentioned when we were talking about The Irishman, and I think that was episode 18, uh, that he doesn't always do well with female characters. And you mentioned, Michael, that he, he two of his best female characters are from Age of Innocence. Oh, Thanks yeah. to Edith Wharton, but yeah. True. But no, absolutely. So for my, my third, I was going between um, Jaws and Star Wars for my Williams, but since John did Star Wars, I'm gonna have to go with Jaws. The soundtrack for Jaws is, is if there was no more than the two notes on the double bass, because seeing that movie when it came out when I was 10 years old, <laughs> which is something my, I might have to talk to my mom about why she let me see that when I was 10. But well, I saw um, the birds at eight. Yeah, I know. And it hasn't affected your social skills at all, Mike. <laughs> just a little. But just those two notes on the double <coughs> bass. And that, I put that on my list for my Williams because that's the first time I ever noticed music in a movie. You can't not notice that. And it, it, it's oh, no. so, the effect of just those two notes and the, we're shooting from the perspective of the shark before we cut away to the beach party and then the first death. And if there were nothing else in those two notes on the double bass, it would be, it would be miraculous. But that, and that was also important because I think it was the first time that Williams really came to wider attention. Is that true? I mean, had anyone really heard of him before? Oh yeah. Uh, the year before, um, Family Plot. I like this music in that movie. I didn't know Williams did the music for Family Plot. Yep. Well, I haven't seen it in ages. I've got to go back to that. Yeah, it's, it's, I watched it recently on Turner. And I mean, it's not a perfect movie. It's slow in parts. But I, once again, Hitchcock knows exactly when to use music and when not to. And the music is done very well. It's kind of a, light score and and, um, and I want to add at this point something you guys said last time when we were talking about this episode is that one of the reasons that maybe that we don't have too many of the old school composers in the um, towards the top of our lists 
is because the music is overused. Michael or John, you mentioned Gone with the Wind as a perfect example. Oh. Just way too much music. And knowing when not to use music, Michael, as you suggest, is as important as when to use it. So yeah, absolutely. So, you know, any Williams That's will do theme. here, just because my own personal experience and the first time I ever noticed the importance of music in a movie, the, the thematic importance, that it wasn't just background, that it added to the story and to what was going on was Williams' score for Jaws. So I'm- I, I should correct myself, Josh. Family Plot was the year after Jaws. After, that was right, 76. Yeah. But I did, yeah, I did, not, know, I did not remember Williams wrote the music. John, what's, uh, what's, what you got for us next? I, I always, I, well, I always, I was gonna comment on Jaws. I always loved the very opening because that, that very familiar, I mean, it's, it's really ingrained in popular culture that- oh my is how the, the opening is used. It just immediately creates that tension. And then it's silence and Spielberg cuts to that scene on the beach. The beach, yeah. And there's no music. Well, someone's playing, there's diegetic music. Someone's playing a guitar. There's a there's, guy, yeah. It's, but there's no soundtrack yeah. music. Yeah, and then yeah, it, but that's, I thought that was so smart because I think a lot of other composers would have continued with this all sort of like, you know, eerie music because she's going to get eaten up by a shark soon. <laughs> just amazing. And, and as a way to build tension and not just as sort of background decoration. No. And that music is definitely in our consciousness. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't go into the water for a month since, after that, even though I was at a lake. <laughs> so. Since we're on the subject of Williams, let's just quickly mention some of the other scores. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Jurassic Park. Harry Potter, JFK, Nixon, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan. And, and even I mean, for a, cra a crappy film like, like Donner's uh, Superman films. I, I mean, love his score for Superman. Oh my God, the score is so good. Those yeah. And those heroic triplets. Oh, the great score. Terrible movie, yeah. but a great score. <laughs> yeah, really cheesy. And uh, a little, little tidbit. Williams played the piano on the music for To Kill a Mockingbird. No, really? See, you pick up all kinds of interesting tidbits with a yes. vintage fan team. So there Good you John. Go. <laughs> That's cool. a nugget, John. It's definitely a nugget. All right, so what do you got for us next, Johnny-o? Okay, I'm, I'm cheating a bit because I'm going to, speaking of music that is in the popular consciousness, the Godfather movies, parts uh, one and two, because I bravo. think of them as one, and I and I think I think of that music as when you go to Godfather two, I think of it as the other movement of a great symphony, the way the nice. music is used. Absolutely. Um, the, the opening, the opening of Godfather one, that familiar trumpet is. Trumpet I mean, theme. everybody knows that music. Oh yeah, knows that music, and it's just. It's so perfect. What's really interesting to me also is about the score is that uh, Nino Rota was al already very, very well known. Oh, yeah. Uh, because of doing all the Fellini movies. But there is nothing that came before that what you would think that Nino Rota did that, did that score. It's, the music is so different from anything yeah. he did before. You know, there's, it's interesting how he uses the trumpet more for, for Vito but then use this the same thing and he uses an oboe for Michael. The, you know, the familiar Godfather waltz. Interesting. And what got, got him disqualified was when you go to the, what people popularized as the 
the love theme. That's the music that's used when Michael is in Sicily, which sure. is very beautiful. It was taken from a score he did earlier from the movie Fortunella. If you listen to that score for Fortunella, it's so different. It's, it's the tempo is much faster. The orchestration is very, very different. It's sort of this jaunty, jazzy kind of music. They don't sound alike at all. It's just yeah, the, I wonder the why the Academy chose to rescind his nomination then. This was for one or two? Because it's one. It's for, one. For, for one. It's be, I, it's, I guess it's because he used that same melody. Mm. But um, the, the, music, for two. the music when he goes to Sicily, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Yes. Yes. And then you get the two. And, and again, in Godfather 1, there really isn't that much music. You no. get to Godfather right. 2, there's a, there's a lot more music. It is, but it's used so well, and it's so, it's so gorgeous. The, the, the transitions and the slight variations that sometimes go with a smaller, smaller orchestra that, that have echoes of, of maybe Italian folk music, and then he'll go to a very lush orchestra with the, with the strings, and it's just... Uh, it just takes your breath away. It's just so, so beautiful. And, but never obtrusive, never calling attention no. to itself. No, no, not at all. It works Once all again, the way through. Coppola was a director who knew when to use it and when not. Coppola is a director who, who loves music. He is very, very much into music. Yeah. Well, because of his father, I would assume. Yes, yes. I saw, oh my God, talking about movie music. Did you guys see the Abel Gant Napoleon at Radio City when they showed no. that in the 80s? Oh my God, it was, Coppola had done the restoration and his father conducted the orchestra of the original score that had been written for it. it that was a sublime, I, that's, we should mention that. One thing that orchestras are doing a lot nowadays, even the New York Philharmonic, our hometown orchestra, is to bring people in. They're doing lots of live screenings of movies with the soundtrack being played and sung by the orchestra and a chorus there live. I, I, well, saw, I, them, to, yeah, I saw them do Phantom Thread at BAM. Yeah, I saw uh, them do Tree of Life at BAM, which was amazing. And I saw the Philharmonic do 2001, which was, you know, as if that movie could get me better live, but there you go. So yeah, look for that. That's always a wonderful, I've never had a bad experience uh, doing it. I went to see um, Buster Keaton's uh, The Cameraman at Town Hall with a sort of a live jazz orchestra that was really, really good too. So that's, that. you know, it, classical music is, is losing popularity. So orchestras are doing this to bring people in. So wherever you oh. are, Vintage Sand fans, if, so, if your local orchestra is doing that, go see it. It's a wonderful experience. Mike, what's up next for you? Okay, since we're on Nina Rota. Oh, there you go. This, this, this movie came out the same year. Well, actually, technically, it came out in Italy the year before Godfather II, but it was released in this country. Uh, uh, Federico Fellini's Amacord. And first of all, I want to say if anybody out there who listens to us regularly has not seen Amacord, no matter now. what age you are, go see Amacord. Even, even if you hate foreign films. Even if, well, some people do hate Fellini. I, no, but, but this, is, this is a movie, I think, for even for a Fellini movie for Fellini haters who think he goes over uh, the top and Dolce Vita in a half. 
but yeah. this is just so it's so I, 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 I say about this movie that what I said once about Rear Window if you don't like this movie you don't have a pulse uh, it's just <laughs> I, I, I just what Mike's thinking <laughs> sorry I, 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 I watched it a couple nights ago for the first time in, in a year and I just Every piece of music in that, every, every shot in that movie is, is so wonderful. It, it starts out, it's a remembrance of uh, Fellini when he was a teenager in uh, uh, fascist, uh, fascist Italy. There's so much variation on the, on the things that Nino Rota did in, in, that, um, in that film. There, there's the remembrance, which is the uh, opening theme. And then there, there are, it goes into separate uh, stories, and he uses. Sometimes it's almost the people are playing instruments, and that's incorporated into the movie, and it works. It shouldn't, but it works. Like there's one person who plays a flute, and then, bingo, there's a piece of music, and it, it's just wonderful. All of Nino Rota's uh, music for Fellini movies are outstanding. And um, uh, has either one of you seen uh, Nina Rota's last score for Fellini? Uh, it's called no, Orchestra. No, I, wanna, I, wanna inter- I, no, I never saw it. If I you want to interject something. You're talking about, you're talking about what, there's a, because it, it goes back to, uh, in Godfather 2, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a moment where it's after Vito has killed Fenucci and after he gets rid of the, breaks up the gun, you know, on the rooftops and he goes back and he goes back to where he lives and his family is on the stoop and there's a man playing, I think the mandolin and he's singing a song and it's, it's the familiar Godfather theme. Yeah. And then when, when the movie was originally shown in the theater, when it first released, it was at this moment when they had intermission and just, uh, Vito says to he's holding the baby. It's Michael and says, you know, you know, tells me I love you very much. He's holding his hand, and then the the orchestra swells up, and he does that same kind of thing, and it works great. Yeah, a real yeah, a real innovator. And uh, boy, can you not imagine Amarcord without the music or yeah, but I can't imagine films. any yeah. of his films. And uh, just a little piece of trivia: I don't know if either one of you have watched. Uh, the Fran Lebowitz documentaries. No, the Scorsese uh, one? No, I have not seen it. Oh, well, they're they're half hours, they're very funny, but uh, at the very end, he uses the music for La Vosha Vita. Oh, nice, perfect, of course he does. Yeah. Of course he would. You know, it's worth watching, but all uh, all of his music, uh, I mean, uh, and up until Amacord and The Godfather, uh, I'd never heard, seen any of the music except for Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. You know, try to yeah. imagine that without a wonderful that, score. That love theme. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Unlike you, Josh, I'm not a fi- fan of that movie, but I think the score is uh, wonderful in that. He also worked for uh, Visconti. Uh, he did, yes, he did. Um, uh, the Leopard and uh, what did he and Rocco and his brothers. Yeah. And amazing. I just love. Uh, I'm so happy. I remember. The night I was watching the Oscars in my dorm and he got it for Godfather t- uh, 2, I, I was literally over the top. I was so happy because it was like, you know, 
this is, this is a man who I think he's one of the greatest composers. And once again, he's not as well known. If it weren't for The Godfather, he wouldn't be known at all. At all. Except, except for, for the Philippines. Right. Well, for me, my, my second one is, is just a kind of a unique thing uh, because it's a score that was written 65 years after the film came out. And um, you faithful listeners know that I'm a, a huge silent movie fan and I will never argue that it's the best film ever made, but if you ask me what the most beautiful film ever made was, I would say Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. I've never, it's a story that was already told a million times in film, but the way he tells it, that late silent freedom of the camera, the faces, the, oh my God. Anyway, so those who, even casual fans may know the story that the original negative of the film was burned. Uh, it was lost in a fire, Dreyer reconstructed it. The versions that people saw throughout the 40s and 50s and 60s were kind of mutilated, but it was still beautiful anyway. In the early 80s, and this is one of those two impossible to be true stories, but it is in the early 80s, they were closing down a sanatorium just outside of Oslo. And they were cleaning stuff out and they went back in the, jan in the very back of the last locker in the janitor's room, uh, they opened it up and there are films that they would show the patients there. And sure enough, at the bottom of the stack is a pristine original print of The Passion of Joan of Arc. I mean, somebody wanted that film to be seen. And so when it was restored, the composer Richard Einhorn went to see it and was so inspired by it that in 1993, he wrote an entire oratorio for the film called uh, Voices of Light, which st stands by itself as a soundtrack. And I've, I've seen Joan of Arc without a soundtrack or I cannot imagine. The, the, the thing that's so miraculous about this score is that it was written so many years after the film, but I cannot imagine the film without this score. It's so powerful. It's done by, most of the oratory music is done by the Dutch singing group, The Anonymous Four. It's so beautiful, especially if you like that kind of medieval music. But what could possibly make that most beautiful movie even more beautiful is this score. So if you've never heard it, or if you've never seen Passion of Joan of Arc without it, it's a must. It's extraordinary. It's a unique story. I know I violated my rule a little bit again and went kind of classical, but it just, it's, have you guys heard it? Have you seen it with the, with the oratorium? Yeah, I, I have. It's beautiful. Oh God. It's so, yeah, it's so it. moving to begin with. And this does, this makes it even more powerful, which should be impossible. So Richard Einhorn's music, 1993 score for Dreyer's 1928 film, um, the Passion of Joan of Arc, which is, as I said, and I stand by it, the most beautiful film ever made, if not the best. All right, Johnny, your last one, your number one, as it were, although we're not necessarily ranked. Uh, my last one is Psycho, <laughs> 1960. Why not? Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, music by Bernard Herrmann, which I believe is one of the greatest scores ever written for a film. Um, did you guys know that the opening, the very opening, those few notes is known as the Hitchcock chord? No. <laughs> no. No. But that's not yes. surprising. Yes. Music, musicologists refer to it as the Hitchcock chord because of the way Bernard Herrmann combined the different notes of the so-called intervals and major and minor. But uh, um, a little history is that I'm, a lot of people already know this. 
The budget for Psycho was rather small, and it was decided they were not going to be able to use a full orchestra. And also because Bernard Herrmann had on his head, well, I'm scoring for a black and white movie, decided to only use strings. And something that he did was that he had all the strings, mainly the violins and the violas, play with a mute and there was no vibrato to create a specific kind of sound. Huh. It's not, it's, it's, it's a little colder. And then except for the shower scene, he had them all take it off. So the sound was completely different. And they also used their bows different. They used the other side. So it had this very chilling, clear, shrieking noise. Wow. <laughs> and originally Hitchcock did not want any music for the shower scene, but when they, they watched it together, he realized it needs music. And Bernard Herrmann already had it in his head. I think he's gonna need music for that part. He'd already written that part. I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine Hitchcock working without Herrmann. I mean, some of his best films were made before Herrmann, but my God, it's so integral. It's so intimately tied yeah. in, you know, starting with the shower, but going, you're right. It is one of the great scores ever written. Yeah. But also, I, I, also, I really, I really love. You know, you have that that great opening theme, which is so it immediately creates that tension, and it's it's sort of a chase kind of music because it's repeated again when Vivian Lee's in the in the car and everything. But Janet. then you go to that other music. For, excuse me, Janet Lee. <laughs> uh, when you know the opening. When Janet Lee and John Gavin are together, and you had that conversation about how he's he owes all this debt because of his dead mother, and you, you immediately get a sense of the how trapped they are, and also there's the part where she's she's in her you know room and she's sort of packing and she has the money and you're wondering what is she gonna do and that music underneath, it's so perfect. And there's one thing he one moment he does that I absolutely love, where he just takes a couple of notes and quotes. Beethoven's Third Symphony. The, the Wait, first isn't movie. that on the record player? Is when when yes. she looks and when when you see Pierre Miles is exploring the house and she goes right. into Norman's bedroom, the record that's on Norman's record player is Beethoven's Third Symphony. The Eroica, yep, absolutely. Wow, I never even caught that. It, it's there's, there's, there's just, just so much going on there. I mean, who could argue with we, any of the yeah, we we could do an entire episode just on the music for Psycho. It's, you yeah. know, you could do an entire episode on just Psycho. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, let's it's, maybe we it's will. Brilliant. Maybe we'll do a deep dive. We should do that, yeah. Michael. What's your what's your number one slash number five? Well, my it, it's the most recent, and it's uh, Johnny Greenwood's uh, score for Phantom Thread. Oh my! Which is a movie that I been over and over and over been raving about. I now watch it like once every two, three months. <laughs> and um, what I love about the score of this, and I have to be honest with you guys, I was not, I'm not familiar with Radiohead. So apart from his other scores for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I was not familiar uh, with Johnny Greenwood. I do know that the other films that he did write the music for, I did like, I thought his scores for the master and there will be blood and inherent vice um, are all very good scores. 
phantom thread from the opening um, score sound, which is called The House of Woodcock, I felt immediately that I was in the 1950s. And supposedly, it doesn't mention it in the film, I read this somewhere, it was supposed to take place in 1955, which was the year I was born. Maybe that's why I like the movie, I don't know. But I could hear this music of, of total benign luxury. And that's what the House of Woodcock was. Interesting. It's just this, this luxury. And then when it goes serious, serious. And um, I, I read an interview with um, um, Johnny Greenwood and he, he uses um, parts of, uh, I'm trying to find, I know, W.C. Bach and Vivaldi. Mm. He, he incorporated a little bit of that and um, he calls it quash pot. He uses, he uses that term. And, oh, and also Schubert. I would, Michael, of, uh, hmm? do you have any sense of how Anderson and Greenwood came together? Because again, you know, the guitarist of Radiohead wouldn't be my first pick to do the soundtrack for my next film. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but boy, I, I, what a fortuitous combination that is. Yeah, although I looked, I looked up uh, uh, Anderson's latest movie, and as of now, there's nobody connect, uh, giving credit for a music. It's what's not he titled. Do? What's he do? Oh, wait, we don't know what he's doing next? Uh, yeah, I do. The film is supposedly finished, except there's nobody listed for music. It's not titled. It's something with uh, Bradley Cooper. And it takes place in the early 1970s. And that's all I know. And the, ah, he you know, did the, early 1970s in Heron Vice already. And, and well, it's, it's local. Um, Bradley Cooper is the only person that uh, I was familiar with in the cast. And there was nobody listed in the music. Johnny Greenwood is doing something for um, Jane Campion. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that's... And that should be an interesting combination. I didn't write down the name of the movie that he's doing, but so he might be uh, working on the score uh, for the latest uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's. Or for all we know, there's no music. It's possible. I will definitely see that movie. And once uh, there's a lot of music in um, Phantom Thread, and usually I object to too much music. Not in this. Not in this movie. All of the music works when it gets serious. It works, and the House of Woodcock, I really feel like I'm a little kid grow, uh, going with my mother to Bergdorf Goodman's. That's wow. like a two-year-old. I hear yeah, which, that music. Which is what, what they were going for, it feels like. I guess so, yeah. All right, well, for me, my number one's a, an obvious one. I, one of my, do you guys remember the Hollywood Twin Cinema? It was on 47th, 8th and 47th. Oh, sure. It, yeah, it's now where the tour buses pick up people, you know, yeah. a CD over there. For a while there, it was a revival theater. And having never seen them before, one day when I was in college, I went to see a triple feature of A Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Six hours in the theater, and I came out a transformed human being. And as, as good as Leone is, so much of that has to do with Morricone. Now, most most critic types think that his best score for Leone was either uh, Once Upon a Time in America or possibly Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, which is really interesting. And what I love about Once Upon a Time in the West is that he had Morricone write the music first. 
and then shot the film to the rhythms of the music. I mean, that's a director-composer partnership, but I'm sorry, I'm going the conventional route here. I have to go with the good, the bad, and the ugly. It is ripped off by everyone. I mean, if, oh, there, yeah. were no, if there were no Morricone music yeah. for Spaghetti Westerns, Tarantino wouldn't have a career. And um, if it was just the opening theme, but it's, the opening theme is not the... the I, I forget what the song is called on the soundtrack, The Power of Gold or something like that, when they arrive at the cemetery. And Eli Wallach is, Tuco is running around and it's just the high soprano voice with the orchestra building and building behind it. And the camera starts spinning so fast that you can't see what's going on. Just the delirium of this search for the, for the money that's been hidden away in the grave. It's just, it, it should be over the top, but it's not. And for me, aside from say Spielberg and, and Williams and Hitchcock and Herman, Marconi and Leone is my favorite um, director-composer pair. And if I had to pick a favorite one, it would be good. To, although Marconi did good stuff right here. The Mission, remember The Mission? Oh, oh yeah. Not, film? not a great film, but boy, yeah. is that a beautiful score. So, you know, Marconi deserves- The best thing about the movie. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, he, his only Oscar was, unfortunately, for Hateful Eight. But my goodness, that you, if, if our, one of our guidelines is how much is the music ripped off, imitated, copied, then is there any movie music that's copied more than Marconi's score for the Leone Spaghetti Westerns, especially Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So that's, that's my topper. So um, let's do a quick, uh, quick round, five honorable mentions. All right, just, just by name and director, composer. Johnny, go. Lawrence of Arabia by Maurice Jari. Ben-Hur, Miklos mm -hmm. Rosa, which is a really great example of a movie that's kind of dull in parts, but because of the great score, you can watch it. <laughs> the Last Temptation of Christ, Peter Gabriel. Ah, uh, The I'm Natural, Randy Newman. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, hear that. Carol, The Natural, Randy Newman. Ah, and okay. something more recent, uh, Carol, by Carter uh, Burwell. Carter Burwell. Oh my God, is that a beautiful score? Good call, Johnny. Good yeah. call. And I would like, like to if... mention. Yep. I want to just mention quickly Dmitri Tiomkin in general, because he had so many great opening themes: Red River Giant, The Guns of Navarone, The Alamo, which was used for Inglorious Bastards. Yep. Rio Bravo. He also did TV uh, music. He did the theme for Rawhide and The Thing, which is a great score. Great score. Wow. Yep. Definitely an old schooler worth mentioning. Mike, your, uh, your honorable mentions? Okay. Uh, Laura by David Raskin. I know it's overused. I cannot imagine that movie without that music. Totally. Elevator to the Gallows. By no, he took one of, that's another one of mine. Good. Uh, I've only seen it once, but I, I love Miles Davis and I love the music. Miles Davis China. in 1958, my God. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. Chinatown by Gary Goldsmith, Jerry Goldsmith. Sure. Uh, the Arist, Aaron Copeland. I know we weren't supposed to use classical composers. I love That's that all right. Story. We make And them. the last one I have to explain, it was the first score I, you were asking about the first score we ever realized. Well, this is my score. It's uh, Mikos Rosa's score for the VIPs. Oh, with and Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton? Yeah. 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 
not a great movie, although it's, it, it's actually, I would call it my favorite bad movie, even though it won the Oscar for Margaret Rutherford's supporting performance. But to this day, whenever I'm in a crowded airport, I hear that music. So interesting. It's amazing how so it's sort of... I, I had to put it down as, as an honorable mention. And uh, generally, I'm not that fond of uh, Nikos Rosa. I, I find his score is kind of heavy-handed. But that particular one, I think it worked. Uh, another one. And we, we have to throw uh, Franz Waxman in there, too, because he's another one of the old schoolers who deserves a mention. So my honorable mentions are another Johnny Greenwood, There Will Be Blood, because it's so, it shouldn't work because of the time period and the kind of music, but it absolutely works for me. Um, and that, as we said with um, Phantom Thread, that pairing of Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood is is just essential now, maybe the most important pair out there. Um, I was gonna say Elevator to Gallows too. I'll, sne- I'll s- slip in a double feature of uh, early 80s Vangelis music. Chariots of Fire, which shouldn't work at all, but some because it's 1924 and you're playing synthesizers, and yet it, and there's a reason that soundtrack became, you know, the theme became a number one hit and the soundtrack was the number one album. And then the next year he did the music for Blade Runner, which if we're talking about influence, you know, has influenced everything that's come after it. Um, Requiem for a Dream. That music, which uh, Clint Mansell wrote, but played by the Kronos Quartet. And my goodness, has that been ripped off by everybody too. It, that, that sort of spare, sharp, almost Bernard Herrmann and Psycho that John was talking about, like feel, uh, almost makes that movie bearable. I love the movie, I just can't watch it, it's so unbearable. Um, I was, I'm throwing in Last Temptation of Christ as well, to Peter Gabriel's uh, soundtrack for that. And my number 10 is An Oddity, um, which is a composer who is not very well known, uh, named Rebecca Portman, who did the music oh. for um, Beloved for Jonathan Demme's much maligned and hated adaptation of Beloved, which I think is extraordinary. And I, I've, I've mentioned this before, the music to Beloved is so, it's, it's a haunting film. It's a ghost story in its simplest terms. And my God, is the music haunting, beautiful, and touches of the South and touches of Africa. And it, it's just, just listen to the music, watch the movie. It's so unfairly overlooked. I mean, just because it's a three-hour film about filicide, you know, <laughs> it doesn't mean it's doesn't mean it's not worth watching. So that's our that's our top ones. But before we move on, we must mention Max Steiner because sure. he is considered to be the father of film music. Max Steiner did the music for over three hundred movies. We don't have enough time to start naming them all, but he is a really good example of. He's a really good example of a composer who wrote some really great music, but also didn't know when to stop. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and yeah. Max Steiner, he, he, he came from that school. He, he came from that school of wall-to-wall music. But, you know, there's a reason that Gone with the Wind, the music from Gone with the Wind is so iconic. I mean, it's, you know, it was the theme for the million dollar movie, John, remember? That's <laughs> right. Yeah. On, on That's Channel right. 9 at 8 o'clock. Yeah, da, da, da. Awesome. So uh, fans, of, fans of our podcast will surely at this point be scratching their heads and asking themselves, well, what about that film that they mention every other episode, it seems? And the... 
Bernard Herrmann's soundtrack for Vertigo um, is by so far, it's almost, an, it, no, I'm not going to say almost. It is in a different category. There is every other movie soundtrack, and then there's this one. So just we have to give it a little bit of love at the end because it is by so far, in my mind, the greatest ever written. Um, what, what, what about the soundtrack grabs you? What stands out to you about the Vertigo soundtrack? There's so much. <laughs> I can't imagine the movie without it. There's, it's, I think of all Hitchcock's movies, uh, I mean, at least of his later work. It's probably the one with the least amount of dialogue. Yes, there are whole passages of no, of where yeah, almost nothing is said. Yeah. And uh, very often, when it's uh, shown on, on, uh, on a commercial uh, station, I don't know if it was originally when it was originally shown on CBS, they cut a lot of that out, which I think is. Atrocious, but well, even, yeah. even just the opening. I mean, everyone talks about how Hitchcock gives you that with the vertigo effect, you know, of the you know pulling back and zooming in uh, when Scotty's hanging from the gutter. Um, but Herman does it with the music even before that. The music is spinning. No. The music is literally spinning and brings us into that sense of vertigo before we see anything besides Saul Bass's title credits. And I also have to get in a, a, a word of love for Carlotta Valdez, that rhythm, the dun, da, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Every time Carlotta is mentioned or is a figure in the background, that rhythm comes up. And when you notice it, you're like, oh my God, there's Carlotta. So, I mean, and that's yeah. just the beginning. There's so much. Uh, what, what else do you guys like? I, I sometimes... I, I sometimes watch just the beginning, just so I can listen to that, that amazing swirling music Ugh. with the swirling images, because there is nothing else like it. And I'll sometimes just watch that beginning and then watch it over again, because I just, I just love it so much. And I really like the way he, he goes from just using a few instruments to a full orchestra for that score. Full orchestra. And well, a good and example of just using a few instruments is is the Carlotta Valdez theme. Right. Or sometimes when, uh, like for example, when he's following her and she goes to the cemetery, just the, the few subtle, very subtle music, but it works so well. And then he goes, of course, to the full-blown orchestra for the, the Wagner, Tristan, and Nozoldi. This is yeah, that's the moment in the hotel when she emerges from the bathroom, the green light, and she's literally returned from the dead. Yes. And it, that, all that lower brass, it's just, it is, it's pure Tristan and Isolde, another story of doomed romance. Yeah. So a very deliberate reference there. And right. again, yeah, he could work with a couple of violins and he could work with a full orchestra. He just always knew what was right. I mean. And you listen to that score and then listen to the score for Vertigo. This guy must have been schizophrenic. Just, just amazing. And I, I have to, I have to just mention, by the way, that for for if serious Hitchcock fans will know that uh, these, you know, after Psycho, they did the soundscape, for lack of a better word, for the birds. There's no music, which was a, a great effort. I love the soundtrack from Marnie, and then, I do too. yep, terrific soundtrack. And then he wrote a score for Torn Curtain. And have you ever heard it? It's gorgeous. And Hitchcock, oh and Hitchcock 
inexplicably because he was, you know, his best friend was Lou Wasserman, the most powerful man in Hollywood. He could, he could, and he, the, the Torn Curtain was his 50th, 50th film. He could have dictated whatever he want. The studio heard the Herman soundtrack, said, no, it's 1966. We need something poppy. We need something the kids will like. And so they, without telling Herman, he didn't have the guts to call him. They, Herman didn't find out that they scrapped his music for Torn Curtain until he went to see the movie. And the music was done by John Addison and just made a terrible movie even worse. However, the good yeah. news is Herman's soundtrack for Torn Curtain is available easily. Track it down. It's beautiful. Okay. Yeah. I'd like it's to hear wonderful. it because um, there's almost nothing I like about that movie. I, I don't even think, I don't think it could have saved the movie, but. No. Um, but it's. Talk it, about and, a movie and, that had two really good actors. Sure. Who had no chemistry at all. None. It was like, how could this happen? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, of course, the best scene in the film has no music, the murder with the, uh, that right. has to be silent, which is, now, you know, best which is scene, where the, he, only, right. the only really good scene in the movie. But it's where he starts opinion. to get a little brutal, which really comes out in frenzy. Uh, but we've talked yeah. about that before. So, yes, yeah, check out, check out, there's our little extra hint, check out, track down Bernard Herrmann's unused score for Torn Curtain, and they never spoke again. Yeah. Never, as you as you said, Herman died in '76 after doing Taxi Driver. They never spoke to each other again after those. What it was ten years of collaboration from Trouble with Harry through Marnie. Yeah. And, and you know we've already, we just in this one show we've mentioned how many of those scores and just a a sad Hitchcock just could have set up and stood up there and said, "Hey, I'm Alfred Hitchcock. We're using the Herman music," and he didn't. He backed down inexplicably. Yeah, Hitchcock I, I though it. Hitchcock though was he was always Hitchcock always had one foot in like you know the commercial return and making a lot of money on a movie. He he was a company man, I, exactly, exactly. John, you know, was oh, I guess yeah. I guess he just succumbed to the pressure of doing that. Uh, I do in know interviews that. though Bernard Herrmann still still praised Hitchcock. Oh well, yeah. I mean the artist, you know. But uh, I also read that in, in the case of Torn Curtain, Hitch, uh, both Paul Newman and Julie Andrews were forced on Hitchcock. He did not yeah, want Yeah, no, he didn't want to. You know, and maybe he just said the hell with it. I, I, he just didn't want to fight I, I, for Herman because just what, I don't know, wasn't in a fighting mood. <laughs> well, I, I like Torn Curtain better than Topaz. That's about the best thing I can say for it. I think I like Topaz a little better. I would agree. Which Wait, isn't saying much. But Topaz was important for me because when I was on Jeopardy, that's the only question I got right in the birthstones category. Because the question was, this November birthstone is also the name of a Hitchcock film. So bam, I was like, what is Topaz? <laughs> topaz. <laughs> What's Topaz? And everybody else is like, what? It's the only good thing that ever came of that movie for me. All right, moving on to the necrology, which is mercifully short. Michael, kick us off. What do we got? Okay, well, uh, the wonderful actor, Yafet Koto, uh. 81. Um, the uh, Never Let Die, Alien, of course. Kananga, Mr. Big. Yep. Uh, Boo Baker, The Running Man. Loved him. Uh, Midnight Run. Sure. Uh, Paul Schrader's uh, Blue Collar. Oh, but, is that uh, a great forgotten film? Wow. Yeah, movie. yeah. actually, that, yes. that, that, that is a, a Schrader movie that I do like. Yep. And I, I sort of forgot about it when I was uh, kissing him more. 
when we were talking about first confirmed. But of course, Yafet Koto is really best known for the TV show, uh, Homicide. My favorite network TV show of all time. And he is, really? he is flawless in the seven seasons of that. Really show. good actor. I, I guess I he must have been sick him. for a while because I looked him up on IMDb and he hasn't worked in all, over 10 years. Yeah. So, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a loss. Who yeah. else? Liam Gass, 84, documentary filmmaker, known for one movie. He won an Academy Award for When We Were Kings about the uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, George Foreman fight in Zaire in 1974. The rumble in the jungle, yep. And if anyone has time, look up his obituary in the New York Times. I mean, you could write a movie about him trying to bring that film to the screen because he went through so many hoops. And I do remember the Academy Awards ceremony when he came up and both Muhammad Ali and um, George Foreman also came to the stage and Foreman helped Muhammad Ali on the stage who was already suffering from Parkinson's. Yep. It's a very, it was a very beautiful moment. Mm. But if you haven't seen that movie, you both seen the movie? I've seen it, yeah, terrific. Yeah, yeah. I think it's available on Showtime. It's, it's really, really a good movie. It, it deserved its Oscar. Uh, Tony uh, Hendra, it's a humorist mm. from the National Lapoon. He wrote the screenplay for The Great White Hype, but he's best known for playing Ian Faith. Ian. The manager of Spinal Tap. And yes. this is Spinal Tap. And he died at Lovely. 79. And then the British character actor, Ronald Pickup. Uh, he's known for mostly stage and telev television work, but was featured in The Mission, which we just talked about. And we go, that uh, film comes up twice, wow. Yeah, uh, Lolita, the Adrian Lynn version. Uh, the Darkest Hour, he played Neville Chamberlain. And as Norman, an aging womanizer in both the best uh, exotic Marigold Hotel and the second best exotic Marigold Hotel. Yeah, I scrupulously avoided those. <laughs> oh, Sorry. the first one was good. I thought it was a good film. The second one was ne not necessary, but the first one... The Marigolds had wilted a little bit, huh? It was a, it was a good movie. Maybe when you're a little yeah, older, I, Josh. I Maybe when I'm a little older. And well, you can appreciate aging. <laughs> Don't be bitter, Michael. Um, but yes. I'm not bitter. <laughs> I wish you could see his face, listeners. <laughs> well, all right. So this brings us to the end of episode 28 of Vintage Sand, the film history podcast. Uh, Vintage Sand is as always a five nines and a four production I want to thank melissa for her tech help mama sue for the use of the hall and gabby for the cool ass logo remember that we are now on spotify apple podcasts and soundcloud and check out the website at www.vintagesand.com for our next episode we're going to take advantage of the fact that the oscars are so late this year and so we're going to be able to sneak in a best of 2020 slash Oscars prediction episode early in April. So we'll do that. I'm looking forward to that because they're really, even though we saw them on TV, there was some fine work done this year. I'm particularly hoping Nomadland wins a whole bunch. Of oh, yeah. Awards. Yeah. Same so, here. There you go. And Minari, lots of good stuff, but we'll yeah. catch you all another, up on Another that. really good film. Make our predictions. We were dead ass wrong last year about Parasite not winning everything. So hopefully we'll do a little better this year. Although we were thrilled that Parasite won everything. So 
Until then, keep hitting refresh till you get your vaccines, everybody. Wash your hands, stay the hell indoors, keep wearing your mask. Don't go to the movies, tempting though it may be, even if you are double vaccine. And we wish you, as always, that your favorite movies may always be streamed.